You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Matthew Henry says this, he says, extraordinary sins are not always the punishment of extraordinary affliction. Or let me reverse that. He says, extraordinary afflictions are not always the punishment for extraordinary sins. But get this, sometimes the trials of extraordinary graces. Let me say that one more time because I messed up on the front end. (laughs) Extraordinary afflictions are not always the result or punishment of extraordinary sins, but sometimes the trials of extraordinary grace. The verse that commands my attention here is verse three. Now we can unpack and try to go verse by verse, but there's just some things as I was reading through this that I couldn't get around. And what marks me here is this engagement Here it says, it was not that this man sinned, the disciples speaking here, or Jesus speaking, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What I'd like to suggest and persuade today is what I hope that you see is biblical truth. God's aim in suffering is pointed toward glory so that we see him supremely in worship. There's a lot that's happening there, so let me... Share that one more time and unpack it. God's aim in suffering is pointed toward glory so that we see him supremely in worship. Verse 2 of John 9. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples asked the question of what caused this man's condition, himself or his parents, right? They get into this deep theological debate and discuss maybe this blind man could have somehow sinned while he was still in his mother's womb. Or maybe somehow his parents may have sinned that was the result of his condition. Jews would believe at this time that uh, if a pregnant woman during this time would worship in a pagan temple, then her unborn was regarded in participating in that pagan rite. So it could have possibly been the result of this condition. But Jesus is not trying to get into this debate and speculate. His response was not the cause of this man's condition, but the purpose of this man's condition. The purpose of this man's affliction is aimed at the glory of God being revealed. Or another way to put it is the state of this blind man's condition is to illustrate the power and purpose of God through Jesus. So specifically through this passage, what we see is Jesus for who he is, the Messiah, the light of the world. That is what's being exposed. That is what's being revealed. So neither the blind man's individual sin or his parents' individual sin was the cause of this blindness. The disciples question it sought to establish a connection between suffering and some definite act. But the answer that Jesus gives asserts that no such connection exists. Maybe in a broad case, we can say that there's a chain connecting to the sin of humanity that has caused the brokenness that we all see 
and experience, but not in the sense that the disciples are trying to argue and bring out. The truth is for us Montrose today, suffering exists and it has divine purposes. I think it's good for us to see some key things regarding God when it comes to this man's suffering or his blindness and, and general things for us to know about God in our suffering. There's something glorious that we see as we look at uh, this man's blindness and his inability to see and his life being marked by begging and affliction and this truth that I hope that we expose informs us about God in our, su- in our suffering. And it's simple. Jesus saw. God sees. God saw and was aware of this blind man's true need. God is also attentive and has responded to our need. That's why he presented Jesus, who was always his answer to brokenness. And I want us to sit there so that we can understand that Jesus is not some plan B. Jesus is the plan. We can track back to Genesis even before creation and to know that Jesus was present. And it was Jesus's fulfillment, him going to the cross, him Living a life that we couldn't live was the answer for our brokenness. And so when we look at Genesis 3, we see the fall of man in Genesis 3. We see when God has pronounced judgment after Adam and Eve have rebelled against him, and we see where God is now establishing the answer even in judgment. He's judging man and he's judging the serpent, but he's still producing hope. As he's pronouncing judgment to the serpent in verse 15, says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise, or in the NIV, I love what it says, crush your head. God speaking of Jesus, and you shall bruise his heel. Him speaking of the suffering that Jesus would endure. This has always been God's plan. God has always been aware of our condition and our need, and he has always had the plan of action through Jesus. Old Testament again, because this is before Jesus actually physically in the flesh comes to the scene. Sometimes we like to separate it, but I want us to see that they connect together. In Isaiah 9, it speaks of a hope in the Messiah, and it's pointing to Jesus, and it says this, The people who walked in darkness, verse 2, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. Fast forward to verse six. For to us, a child is born. This is Isaiah. To us, a son is given. This is Advent language here, talking about Jesus before he physically comes to the scene. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God is not unaware of our suffering. He's not unaware of the suffering that exists. God is not blind to the afflictions of this world. 
Not only that, but seeing that they're a problem, he's responded, Montrose. Can I beat this dead horse into the ground? Jesus is the light of the world. Your suffering may be present, but God is not absent. He sees. Tim Keller says this. I love this quote. Suffering can only have ultimate meaning in relation to God. This means for our suffering to have ultimate meaning, God must be valuable to us more than health and life. We see constantly through scripture that God is not only seen, but he's responded. Verse six of John nine, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. It's a unique transaction. A little weird for us for obvious reasons, but for that context, this unusual action by Jesus had some major implications in what it communicated. Not only what it communicated about Jesus, but what it also communicated to the Pharisees. This most certainly echoes Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. I believe Jesus here is mirroring Genesis 2, 7. What this represents is that Jesus brings new life. That Jesus is God. That Jesus can form and make new life. He's come to give sight to those who are blind. This physical manifestation of healing is to point toward the spiritual reality and work of Christ. God sees and he responds. We see this forming mud is a problem for the Pharisees. Obviously because it's noted that this day of healing is on the Sabbath. For the Pharisees, it's obvious that they followed the Mosaic law and a part of that on the Sabbath work was to cease. And so this miracle worker is deciding to to, to, to perform miracles on the Sabbath? It shows greater in, in greater context and detail what it says about Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is greater than Moses who gave these laws. And in John 5, they even connect and say Moses talks about Jesus. Jesus was there even before Moses. Not only is the mud making unique, but the place that Jesus sends the man, right? The passage is clear about Siloam meaning sent or to send, which the significance here is that the father sent the son and the son sent this man born blind. So the name of the pool doesn't just apply to the man, but also to Jesus himself who was sent from heaven. Because God sees and he responds. Your suffering may be present, but God is not absent and he responds through Jesus who he sent. I'd like to quickly summarize for us a bit of this middle section and hopefully we can stay on track with this. The blind man is now healed by Jesus and he's brought to the Pharisees. They're trying to figure out, okay, who healed you? How did this happen? This is miraculous. 
This man was born blind and now all of a sudden he can see. So he's brought to the Pharisees to give testimony of his account. They obviously don't believe his testimony and they attempt to pry the truth out. He persists in his account. They even asked his parents if he was born blind because they don't believe it. And they had to find them to ask and just to assure, okay, was he born blind from birth? Or is this not real? His parents respond, yes, he was born blind from birth. But they're unsure of who healed him. Because they understand that anybody that that confesses that Jesus is Christ or associates with Jesus will be kicked out of the synagogue. So they go back to the blind man with questions. He begins to get frustrated, begins to be smart in his response. As a result, after he said all he said, reaffirming the truth of what happened, not changing his testimony, they decide to cast him out. And I'm summarizing a lot. But this man who was born blind from birth, because of his blindness, was seen as an outcast, and now that he's healed, has been kicked out of the synagogue. There's a connection here that I want to make. Because for some of us, we believe that when we follow Jesus, suffering ceases to exist. But the universal truth here is that no matter how we feel about pain and suffering, it exists. And our association with Jesus doesn't eliminate pain and suffering. It actually may be the reason for it. But there's something distinct. There's something hopeful for those who believe that the world cannot experience. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. When we suffer, we can rejoice in knowing that there is a future glory that awaits for our suffering for the sake of Christ that far outweighs any current trial that we will experience. Not only that, when we suffer, what we know is that God is with us. He's not absent. When we suffer, we know that we share in the sufferings of Jesus, and it's glorious. Your suffering is not wasted, but it's for glory. These momentary afflictions cannot compare to an eternity of glory in the presence of the Father. I want you to stop and pause and think for a minute with me. I was listening to a sermon one day by Matt Chandler, and he said this little tidbit that I thought was just really good, just gave me eternal perspective. In 10,000 years, what happens in this moment will not be anything. And I think about that. 
I can't even remember what happened when I was six years old. I laugh at my wife sometimes because she says she can remember things from preschool. <laughs> I love you, baby. 10,000 years from now, though. 10,000 years, these things will not only be trivial, but inconceivable that we even spent a second consumed with momentary trials. These momentary afflictions cannot compare. Suffering is going to exist. Maybe the reason if you're following Jesus. Romans 8, 17, 2 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 4, Galatians 2, Philippians 3, and so on, talk about our suffering as followers of Jesus. Do not be surprised, but know that your suffering is not wasted. Tim Keller says this on suffering. Suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. We don't see Jesus in this middle section. The blind man actually doesn't even see Jesus until the end of the passage, right? Jesus tells him to go to Siloam and wash, and then he sees. But there's something about this blind man's response. This blind man is convinced that Jesus is for him, regardless of whether he sees him or not. He says, one thing I do know, that I once was blind, but now I see. In the end of this passage, we see Jesus hearing that the man had been cast out, and he finds the man and leads him to belief. And this once blind man who had been cast out of the synagogue for his association with Jesus or belief in Jesus has now believed in him and worshiped. Commentators say that he lay prostrate before the Lord. You don't really know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Suffering was experienced, but sight was given and glory was revealed. God's aim in suffering is pointed toward glory so that we see him clearly, supremely, and lay prostrate before him in worship like this blind man. How often do you struggle and believe that because things are not going well or because life is crushing you that you've done something wrong? Like the disciples, you may be tempted to ask, what is the cause? What sin have I committed the reason for this suffering? Or in contrast, you may feel that God is blessing you because life is going good. Because everything is going seemingly right. But here's some truth. Life going well doesn't mean God is blessing you. And life going bad doesn't mean God is punishing you. It may mean the opposite. Extraordinary afflictions, right? Not always the result or punishment of extraordinary sins, but the trials of extraordinary grace. I got another quote from Keller if y'all let me share Some suffering has no purpose other than to lead a person to love God more for himself alone. All right. 
and so discover the ultimate peace and freedom. Suffering can be liberating when it's God's agent to help you to see the vanity and vapor of life to lead you to something better. God himself. Your suffering is great, but guess what? God is greater. We need in both cases, whether life is going good or life is going bad, to be reminded of the God who has initiated his love by presenting Jesus. The God who gives sight to the blind. The God who illuminates his light so that we can see Jesus. The God who desires to display his works in and through broken creation. The God who has sent Jesus to save and to give us ultimately what we need. The reality is, is that suffering exists and we all will be affected to some degree at some point. But God has been good by illuminating Jesus. And he's what we need more than health and life. Life being good or bad doesn't apply, imply God's goodness. But there's a grace-filled interjection there. His initiation and in sending Jesus does. Life being good or bad doesn't imply God's goodness, but his initiation in sending Jesus does. Jesus. This same Jesus that we're talking about in John 9 is the same Jesus that takes a trip to Golgotha. The same Jesus who would later on suffer and die so that we could have life. So our suffering is not something that's uncommon to him. The pain that you experience is not something uncommon to our Savior. Something that he is intimately connected with. And if we are to be his followers, we should expect and share in his sufferings. So like 1 Peter 2 don't be surprised, be encouraged when you face trials of many kinds. Be of good hope in knowing that you aren't alone, that Christ has also suffered. And if we suffer with him, scriptures promise that we will reign with him and experience his glory and eternity with the Father. Be encouraged as well because God is with us in the midst of our suffering as well as giving us a family of faith to walk with us through it. He sees and he's responded. Today you may have come in blind to your true need. You may, like the Pharisees in this passage, have hardened your heart toward Jesus. Maybe you've questioned God based on the suffering that you've either seen or heard. I've heard of a lot of suffering that has exist even in this body. You may have held resentment as a result because of the afflictions you've seen or you've faced. You may feel as if God is unaware and unengaged in this life, but I have news to share. He's not unaware. God sees, God hears, God has responded supremely through Jesus. And if you do not have eyes to see, he gives sight to those who are blind. God desires his glory to reveal. He desires his glory to be revealed. 
What you need most is not for life to be perfect, but a perfect savior. Jesus has lived a life that we couldn't live. He's died the death that we deserve. He's risen from the grave and now ascended in the heavens at the right hand of the Father in total victory with all power and glory. This Jesus has presented himself to you today, Montrose. God has drawn near to you today through the proclamation of his word. And you have an opportunity to respond because of his grace. You have an opportunity to feast, to enjoy, to savor Jesus. Will you take him today? Let's pray. God, you are good. You are beyond good. We do not deserve a single thing. But in your goodness, in your foreknowledge, foreseeing the problem that exists, you chose to intervene to do things that we could not possibly ever do, to do a work that only you could do. You bridge the gap between us and God, us and yourself, so that we have right relationship with you, so that we can fellowship with you, God, in your grace, you have made yourself known. I don't want to miss that. God, in your grace, you have shown that you are better. I don't want to miss that. God, you have shown that you understand the suffering that we go through. And you are not far. You are present. You have shown that you care enough to give us sight when we can't see. Which has shown your presence. So Father, my prayer today is that you lead those that have been far from you. Maybe those in this room that have believed at one point but feel that they're far from you. Will you remind them, God, that you are not far? Will you remind them, God, of your overwhelming love that cannot compete with the single thing that we get in this life? God, it is my prayer that we leave this room with more affections for you, that we leave this room treasuring you above all things, that we leave this room with eyes to see your goodness and for our lives to be transformed like this blind man. Help us to say, God, we know that one thing is true, that we were blind, but now we see. Lead us, God, to be prostrate before you. And I thank you for all of these things and more. In Jesus' name.